We have been preaching through the book of Philippians, and that is where we will return again today. We'll be in the third chapter um, of Philippians, and um, this is an interesting passage. I guess they're all interesting, but um, particularly in light of what Paul has been encouraging and admonishing uh, this church in Philippi. Um, and so uh, it's very rich text. Uh, could have I, All week long in preparing for the sermon, I felt like I could have been preparing five or six sermons the whole time because there's just so much, there's so many threads to untangle. So, um, but let's go ahead and, and read the text right now. Philippians 3, uh, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has Reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, let's pray. O Lord and God, you are mighty, you are wonderful, um, you are so kind and good to your people, Lord. I just pray, even now in this time where we read and study your word, where we hear your voice, Lord, we recognize the great things you have done for us, the mighty things you have done for us, and chiefly among them, sending Christ. Lord, I pray that we would know him. I pray that we would know him, uh, yes, from this text, but we would know him as Lord of our life, that he sits enthroned forever, that we would know him, and that we would pursue knowing him, and that we would uh, pursue knowing him, uh, becoming like him in his death, experiencing the power of the resurrection, Lord, be with me now as I preach. I am a, a vessel unfit for the task for which you've called. But Lord, you are faithful, you are kind, you are good, you are merciful. So Lord, be with me now. Be with the preaching of your word. Empower it. Convict our hearts. Encourage our hearts, Lord. Fill our hearts with hope. Hope of a life that is yet to come. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. As I alluded to, I could have spent, uh, I, I did spend a lot of time this week 
And preparing for the sermon, there were so many things. Again, you hear that, it's so packed. We could talk about so many theological things, wonderful truths about what God has done, wonderful things that God is doing, the value of Christ, the worth of Christ. And we'll try to talk about as many of them as, as we can. Um, but again and again and again, I'm just reminded the simplicity of what Paul treasures, of what he has forsaken, what he counts as loss, and what he counts as gain. Christ. And simply, if you're going to take anything away from the sermon, we're going to talk about a lot of things because there are a lot of things to talk about. But remember that Christ is worthy. He is of ultimate value. He is to be worshipped. He is to be praised. He is... Everything in comparison to Christ is nothing. It is rubbish. And so, in my failings, just remember Christ's glory. And so... Um, and that's what Paul wants the Philippians to know, right? That's, what, that's what's energized him. That's what's got him writing to the Philippians, is he knows Christ, and he wants them to know Christ. And he's pressing on to know Christ more and more, and he wants more of Christ. And so that's still true for us. So that's as, as true as it is for the Philippians, it's as true for us, that we should press on to know Christ and to know him, the gain that he has for us. And Paul, in, in, in these verses, there's really three things, I think, that Paul, that we can look at Paul and see that he's an example. We've talked about the last couple of weeks of Timothy as an example that points us to Christ, that his ministry has pointed the Philippians to Christ, and then Epaphroditus as well. These are examples, people who, they live life worthy of the gospel. They're trying to pursue Christ. They know him, and they want to know him more. And so they press on. And so Paul is kind of turning the spotlight onto himself. And so in this sermon and the sermons that come, we're going to see that Paul sees himself as an example. And as we read already, it's not because he sees himself as so great, although he did have confidence in the flesh if he wanted to have it, but because of a revolutionary thing that has occurred to Paul. He doesn't outline it here, but we know that this event is his conversion on the road, of the, uh, road to Damascus. That in meeting Christ, in knowing Christ, it changed the way he keeps his books. It changes the ways in which he does the math. And so all those things that he could stand firmly on before, he now counts as, ra as trash. And now he sees Christ as valuable, more valuable than everything. And so there's really three ways in which Paul is an example, a signpost that points the Philippians to Christ in this text, in, in these 11 verses. And so... Uh, those things of how Paul is, is an example, uh, I think the first one we see, here's all three of them, is that, is a warning. It's to beware. He's telling the Philippians to beware of those false teachers. Beware of them. Look out beyond guard for false teaching. Christ is of such value that we have to protect the teaching that we receive. You have to protect what, is being, what you're being exposed to because Christ is of such value that if you misunderstand Christ, if you under, misunderstand the nature of our relationship with Christ, it is peril, it is doom. And so Paul, he, he says, beware to the Philippians. But he also encourages them to believe. He wants them to believe. Paul, he knows what it is to have confidence in the flesh, right? He lists all those things, and we'll look at them, we'll dig into those things. But he knows what it's like to have confidence in himself. It takes no belief, right? It's a false belief to have confidence in yourself. 
But what Paul is encouraging the Philippians is to do what he does, what he has learned to do, which is to believe not in the righteousness that comes from keeping the law, but believe in the righteousness which comes through belief and faith in Christ Jesus. So he tells the Philippians to beware, he tells them to believe, and he also tells them to become. And so when they believe in Christ Jesus, when they know him as their, as their risen Lord, God places a claim on us. To believe in Christ, it compels us, it moves us. It means that we participate with Christ and we become like him. That's the natural result of believing on Christ and believing in Christ is that we would become like Christ. So Paul, his, his message is to beware, to believe, and to become. And so um, those first three verses, that's really where Paul sinks in on this warning, this warning against the false teaching. Uh, we know from Paul's other letters, uh, in particular Galatians, uh, that the Judaizers, this camp, they're called the circumcision party. They are the false teachers which Paul is telling them to watch out for. And so then um, this opening verse he actually starts by saying, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And so uh, this is a, a theme throughout the book of Philippians, rejoicing. And he wants to say again to them, because the reality is, is our call to rejoice in the Lord is actually armor that we put on to be able to fight against false belief. When uh, Nehemiah said, uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So all true joy is in the Lord. And so joy, it prepares us. If we, are, if we have an, adopt an attitude of rejoice, of rejoicing, of joy in our hearts, when we are confronted with things that endanger us, we already have a protective layer to, to, to lean upon and saying, God is good. We can rejoice in God. He is protecting us. He loves us. And so, again, Paul, this theme, he's encouraging them once more, rejoice in the Lord. And he actually follows it up by kind of what sounds almost like he's a little self-conscious about what he's about to say and what he is saying. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He's almost like qualifying that he has to say this again to them. And so what is it that he's qualifying? Why is he saying, hey, you know, I've got to say this again. It's not trouble for me and it's good for you. Well, yes, that constant theme, that consistent theme of rejoice in the Lord, of course he wants to remind them of that. But he is also reminding them um, as what we saw with Epaphroditus and with Timothy, and as we've seen Paul's other letters to the other churches, is false teaching is so prevalent, it's such a danger that faces the church, even the early church. And so Paul, he knows that he has banged this drum before. He knows he's played this ditty before. He knows this is what he's about to say regarding uh, being on guard, watching out, beware for the false teachers. They've heard the song and dance, right? They've seen the song and dance. So he's just saying, Prepare to receive what I've already told you before. But Paul has good reason to repeat himself. He will never grow weary in encouraging God's people to rejoice, or, and he will also never grow weary in defending God's people. And so Paul, he says this very harsh warning, very harsh words that Paul says. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so these aren't, this isn't three separate groups. He's talking, all of these are ways in which he's describing the Judaizers. And so Paul is simply, he's taking a play out of Jesus' playbook, honestly. Near the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, 7, verse 15, 
Jesus says he, he cares so much about his believer, or his, the believers, the followers there on the sermon or on the mountain. And he warns his followers. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus used these harsh, this harsh language against false teachers. And Paul is just adopting that as well. And so uh, these wolves, again, it's the, the circumcision party, the Judaizers. And what their great grievous false teaching is that in addition to, yes, believe in Christ, you also need to receive circumcision. And so it's not just the work of Christ. You need to do something to be able to be part of God's people. To be truly of God's people, there is a work that you must do to belong. And Paul, because of their belief in adding something to the finished work of Christ, that's why Paul calls them dogs. So dogs, uh, in the ancient world, dogs, uh, I'm a dog person, so, you know, no one take this offensively um, if you love dogs, but in the ancient world, dogs were like, they're miscreants, right? They're just ravengers. They're those that come along and just uh, eat from trash, right? They're not, they weren't oftentimes pets. Um, and so the way we think of them is a lot differently. But so dogs, in the ancient world, um, Again, they would be seen as scavengers who ate off trash. They ate the scraps. And that's why, they, if you're eating off scraps, you're eating trash. It's because you're not worthy of the, of the good things, right? Of the, of the right things. And so that's why Jews also call Gentiles dogs. It's because Gentiles were ceremonially unclean. They were dogs. They were not worthy of the things of God. And so there's an irony here. There's a bit of irony in Paul calling these Judaizers, those who are attempting to use a ceremonial law, they're trying to use a ceremonial ritual, and he calls them dogs. He says, because you're trying to actually add something to the finished work of Christ, you are the dogs. You are the outsiders. He actually calls them Gentiles. They are the true Gentiles. Those who believe in Christ, in Christ alone, and trust in the finished work of Christ, they are the true Israel. They are the true circumcision. But he also calls them evildoers. And so throughout Paul's ministry, uh, he, he talked about this, uh, this uh, adding of circumcision to the finished work of Christ. And so in Galatians 5.2, he says, Look, or he says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Their, the Judaizers' insistence on the need to do the works of the law, their, their works righteousness, they think they're doing good works, they're actually doers of evil. And that's what Paul calls them, that they are evildoers. And lastly, this insult, this last insult that Paul throws on to the Judaizers is he calls them those who mutilate themselves. And so, without getting too graphic, if you know what circumcision is, mutilation, it kind of makes itself up. But there's also some irony in Paul saying this, right? Circumcision in the Old Testament, it is the sign and seal of how people become covenant community members. It's how you become part of Israel. And so the irony here is that Paul, in talking about how they're, they're mutilators, right? The, the, the Judaizers, they're mutilators. The irony is that um, he uses the same word that is found in 1 Kings 18.28, so in the Greek Septuagint, the same Greek word is used there when the prophets of Baal are trying to manipulate their god, Baal, um, and they cut themselves, right? They're cutting themselves to be able to get God to act favorably towards them. And so what Paul is saying is the Judaizers are just like the prophets of Baal. 
that they that their use of circumcision is a way in which they think they can actually merit God's favor, just like those prophets of Baal. And so Paul, in this insults, he's so harsh on them, but his harsh words, they're meant to express his true concern for the Philippian church. So in contrast with the Judaizers who put their confidence in the flesh, Paul now tells the Philippians that the true marks, or what the true marks of Christian worship are. And so in verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And there's a lot we could say about worshiping um, by the Spirit of God. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, The Father seeks true worshipers, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the Judaizers, they're seeking to uh, leverage their ritual purity and their ceremonial observance. They're trying to leverage that as a way to please God. And that is not what true Christian worship is. We don't come here and play our songs and say our prayers and read our Bibles as a way to which we can to try to impress God, that we would move God to do something for us. We come here as those who receive the grace of God. He is the one who works. We are the ones who receive. And so uh, we worship in spirit. If we were to rely on the Old Testament ceremonies for our worship, it would be like on the brightest day of the year trying to use a match to see all of what's around you. It's unnecessary. There's no reason to use these Old Testament ceremonies because we worship in spirit. Our worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who bridges the chasm between God and man. And he intercedes for us. He intercedes for our prayers. He makes our worship acceptable to God. And so we are those who worship in spirit. But the true circumcision, they don't just worship in spirit. They also glory in Christ. And this is simply to say that those who are true Christians, we boast in Christ. We do not boast, we do not have circum, uh, we do not have confidence in our works but we boast and we glory in christ and his completed works and actually to even add circumcision or any right to the work of christ is to destroy the sufficiency of his grace for us and so paul tells the philippians to beware of those who are advocating works of the law being necessary to be a true christian the philippians must be on guard because it is easy to slip into self-righteousness as a Presbyterian, I know that. You know, as, as a guy who thinks, like, I, the online current joke for Presbyterians is that we have this superior theology. And of course I believe that, right? Um, but it's so easy for us to, to think that because we don't do this or we do that, that we are actually the real Christians, that we're better. And though I think Presbyterian theology is amazing, I'm, I love it, you know, I'm, I'm all in, um, Sometimes we run the risk of excluding others or maybe placing others outside of our camp. Things like, we're not, you're not going to find smoke machines here, right? And so sometimes we think, like, maybe that makes us a little bit better. We, 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 we're really worshiping in the Spirit because we don't use smoke machines. Um, so, and again, I think it's wise not to use smoke machines. I'm not advocating for smoke machines, okay? So, uh, but I am saying... If those are the things that we look at and have confidence about how we are standing before God, if that's where we find our confidence, we're no better than Judaizers, Judaizers, right? Our confidence must be found 
in Christ alone. And anything that we put on par with that, that would make us to be a good Christian, is folly, it's sin, and it must be rejected. As Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 64, verse 6, all our good deeds are rubbish. All our righteous deeds, they are like a polluted garment. And when we boast in glory in anything other than Jesus, we need to return to the gospel of grace that drew our souls to our Savior. We need to see that Christ alone deserves our full confidence. And so Paul is an example to the, he's an example of Christ to the Philippians because just as Christ cares so much about his followers, Paul cares about his followers. He cares about those Christians that he has helped um, establish and that who he's taking care of, who he has spiritual oversight for. And so just like Jesus had said, beware of false teachers, Paul is telling the Philippians, beware of the dog, the evildoers, and those who mutilate themselves. But it's not just this warning of beware, of the warning of looking out, but Christ also tells them what it is to believe, true belief. In verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so we could go into all those things. Paul lists seven different things right there. There are those things that he counts as uh, credits in his account. We actually, Paul is going to adopt a lot of uh, like bookkeeping or accounting type lingo, uh, banking. Like he's going to start talking about ca- uh, counting things as loss and gaining things. And so, um, but Paul is the perfect apostle to bear effective witness against this particular false teaching, because of his own religious background. Paul puts himself on the side of the Judaizers for a moment, and he says that if we were going to have confidence in the flesh. I'd smoke all of you. If we were going to look to ourselves, I would be the top dog. So he says in verses 5 and 6, he was circumcised on the eighth day, right? Paul did it by the book. His family, they nailed it, right? Not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. The eighth day, circumcised, boom. Not only that, he is of the people of Israel. See, he's not a Jew by conversion. He's not a proselyte. No, he is... You can tie his lineage all the way back to Abraham, right? He is a Jew. He is an Israelite. Not just that he's an Israelite, though. He also belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. There's a lot of reason as to why Benjamin holds a special place of honor amongst the other tribes, um, specifically when the kingdoms were dividing. Um, First, we can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 12. Um, When the kingdoms were dividing, it was Benjamin and Judah that stuck by the Davidic dynasty, right? So, the, the northern kingdom, they stood by uh, the lineage from David. And so they always kind of had a special place in Jews after, in the Israelite um, tradition after that, is because Benjamin held faithful. Um, also, Benjamin is the tribe of which Saul, the first king of Israel, came. And so there's reason to even boast in being a Benjaminite. But, more th- but also, in addition to that, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And this one's kind of tricky to pick up. If you just read it, you're like a Hebrew of Hebrews. This kind of sounds redundant. What that actually means, though, is he's boasting that his family remained faithful to Hebrew culture. He, remember, his name was, was Saul of Tarsus, right? And he was, Tarsus is a Gentile area. And so even in a Gentile city, Paul, his family, they were very serious. They, didn't, they, would, they would be speaking Hebrew and Aramaic. Yes, he learned Greek, but in all formal settings, he maintained his being a Hebrew of Hebrews. He kept the culture of a, of a Hebrew. 
And so those first four advantages, those are just things that are his pedigree, right? He's just born into those things. He's not doing anything for that, but that's just his pedigree. But these last three advantages, they are things that he actually, they're things that he did. They're not just things he received. They're, they're very, the very things that he was. And so he says that he's a fair, in, uh, sorry, he says that in accordance to the law, he's a Pharisee. And so a Pharisee, we see that Paul, he mentions in Acts that his dad was a Pharisee. We also see that Paul, he learned under the, rab, under the rabbi uh, Gamaliel, the leading Pharisee of the day. Acts chapter 5 tells us about that. And so the Pharisees, those were those. Pharisee literally means separated one. They're the ones who they would have the most strict observance of the Mosaic law. And so when it comes to keeping the law, he was a Pharisee. Like he, he, was, he took it really, he was, he was sweaty about it, right? He was, took it very seriously. And then his next credential is that Paul, in his zeal, he persecuted the church, right? We all know about Stephen. We all know what he, he you know, the rallying the troops to be able to stone Stephen. Um, but the, really, it, when, I think when we think about this, you think, well, aren't the Jews the same people who are told, do not commit murder or do not kill? But, like, why are they so gung-ho about being okay with the zealot, the, you know, the zeal that comes with killing Christians? There's actually, um, we could trace this through if we had more time, but there's actually this, uh, there's the story of Phineas back in the Old Testament in Numbers 25, verses 6 through 13, um, where Israel was practicing interracial marriage, which was like a big no-no. And so uh, Phineas is a guy who, being fed up with this practice of interracial uh, marriage, um, he harpoons, he spears a couple in their marital relations, and he is actually honored by God for doing such, right? Phineas is this guy who is, in Psalm 106, he's actually spoken of in high honor because of what he did, because he was righteous enough and zealous enough to be able to say no to the unrighteousness of his day even though he took people's lives in doing so. And so there is a historical basis upon which this zeal for Paul, there would, he would be honored because of how hard he's persecuting the church. This would be an honor for him. It's something he can count as righteousness. And so Paul persecuting of the way, um, he used any means necessary to persecute the church, and he added it to, it was, this would be something he would have confidence in, something that he would see giving him righteousness. And lastly, uh, Paul calls himself blameless. And he's not saying that he's without sin, but he's just saying that even when he does sin, he goes through all the ceremonial laws to make himself clean again. That he followed the law perfectly, right? That even when he sinned, he even went back and covered for that. So these seven credentials, they demonstrate that Paul in every way, he can have confidence in the flesh and more so than the Judaizers. But he says these famous words, even though he has this great amount of which he can boast in, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Again, these words, they, they hearken us to things that Christ said. Christ said he, the two famous parables. Um, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. He says in Matthew 13, verses 44 and 45, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. 
And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Paul, when he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, he found the pearl of great value. He found the treasure in the field, which he sold everything for. All of those credentials, all those things that he looked on and took confidence in, all those things he stood upon, he counted them as loss. That he may gain Christ. Again, we see this um, bookkeeping language being utilized here, gain and loss. And so Christ, the person, he is of supreme worth and had become the center of Paul's life. And for his sake, he now regards all his privileges as nothing. But not just nothing, right? There's that word rubbish. The King James actually does a better job of rendering that word. He calls it dung. It's excrement. It's, it's, it's gross. It's disgusting. It's vile. And so to count on those things, to count on those seven things, to count on his pedigree, to, to count on his performance, it is disgusting to Paul that he would look at those things and consider them of any value. In fact, anything compared to Christ is rubbish. Anything compared to Christ is garbage, it is trash, it is excrement. So believe. He's encouraging them to believe not in the righteousness that comes from law, but the righteousness that comes from Christ. To place faith. It comes through faith. It's easy to see the things that we do and think that they are meaningful. But to look on someone else and believe the work that they are doing, that it is considered the work that you are, can be appreciated for, that requires belief. It requires faith. Believe in the sufficiency of Christ's active obedience. Rest only and wholly on Jesus. Beware of those who claim to believe in Christ, but who place their confidence anywhere else but him. Be sure to note also this personal language. This is the only time this construct that Paul uses that he refers to Christ Jesus, my Lord, my Lord. This is intensely personal. This is personal, very personal language from Paul. And so he has personally met with Christ. He personally knows Christ. And in knowing Christ, he considers everything else loss. And so it should be in our ears, it should be ringing between our ears. What do I think of Christ? How do I value him? Is he my Lord? And so one thing that uh, Calvin says about this text, and I think this is a wonderful illustration. Calvin, I think, nails it. This idea of uh, disregarding everything we have so that we can make it to Christ. He likens it uh, to like uh, a group of men on a ship that are about to be shipwrecked. And Calvin writes um, that Paul is like one of these men in danger of a shipwreck who throw everything overboard, that the ship being lightened may reach the harbor in safety. Paul then was prepared to lose everything that he had rather than to be, be deprived of Christ. And so, uh, in verse 9 it says, and be found in him. And so, this belief that we have, it actually means something for us. And the chiefly what Paul talks about is, when we believe in him, we gain something. We gain union with Christ. That could be a whole sermon right there, just the idea that we are found in Christ, that you are his and he is yours. Because we believe on Christ, we live in him, we rest in him, we have everlasting union with him. 
but we also receive imputed righteousness, right? That's the thing that he's really driving home here, is that our union with Christ, it means that we gain a righteousness that's not our own, that it's alien, it's foreign, it's from outside of us, and that we receive it by believing in Christ. So Paul, he's pointed the Philippians to Christ in his concern, in warning them about the false teachers, and he points us to Christ, um, so he points us to that in that he cares so much for people like Christ cares for, pe- for people. But he also points us to Christ in that complete and utter belief in the surpassing worth of Christ is necessary. Not to trust, not to have confidence in our works, but to wholly trust on Jesus. It is this belief in Christ and his surpassing worth that made Paul become a partaker of Christ's resurrection, his sufferings, and his death. And this is where we'll end Because he knew Christ, because Christ is one with him, because he is in Christ, it places a claim on Paul. He's becoming something because he knows Christ. He becomes something because he believes in Christ. And so he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This was the toughest thing I studied all week. I kept reading this and thinking, like, what is the power of the resurrection? What is the power of the resurrection? Paul is so excited about it. He's so on fire for it. What is it? And I kept, just kept overthinking it. But it's so simple. It's way more simple than what it sounds, at least to me. I, make, I complicate things a lot. But it's so simple. We are able to endure suffering because there is a resurrection. Christ suffered. Christ suffered. And we think, we immediately when we hear that, we think that, yes, on the cross. But he hungered. Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he stressed, right? He sweat. He experienced loss of life, loss of friends, loss of loved ones. Christ suffered. And thank God for the resurrection. Because in our sufferings, because of the resurrection, we have a hope that those things, that our sufferings, that they're not just for nothing, that they can be used, that God is using them to bring us into greater conformity with Christ, that we become like him in his death, that when Christ suffers and we join in the sufferings that Christ, that in Christ endured, that we become like him in his death. Our suffering is aimed at the death of self and sin. We gain in our losses because we become more dependent on Christ. Our trials help us. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Problem of Pain. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. God whispers, or God shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our sufferings should move us to examine ourselves and to move us to new depths of repentance and new heights of trust in him. In all our miseries, we are partakers of Christ's cross. If we say, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, If we die with him, we also shall live with him. And if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. For Paul, it was an honor to share in the sufferings of Christ. It became, it became for him how he became more conformed to the image of Christ, how he became like his Savior. And your sufferings, Your loss. It is how you become more like Christ. 
He's not leaving you in those things. They're, they have aim. They have purpose. They're bringing us to greater conformity of, with Christ. We become more like him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10, the resurrection of life Jesus is being manifested in our mortal bodies. We are being transformed from the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And so, Paul, he desires this resurrection. He yearns for it because it is the deliverance of the frailties of this world. And there's a future aspect to this that Paul moves on to in verse 11, right? He says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And that sounds kind of funny in the context of everything, but what Paul is simply saying is that he needs the resurrection. He, he will attain, he will strive for it any way possible. And what he simply is, is meaning is that whether it's by martyrdom, whether it's by natural death, and whether maybe he's still around for the second coming. But either way, Paul, because of his knowledge of Christ, because of his belief in Christ, he will press forward to know the resurrection. It's the thing he desires, the thing he yearns, because Christ is of surpassing worth. As Paul has urged the Philippians to see, I pray that we see all the riches which are ours in Christ Jesus. And so join in me in counting all things as lost for the sake of the excellence of knowing Christ. Rejoice in him, rest in him, boast in him, believe in him, and become conformed to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our king, you are our God, you are wonderful. You serve us well. You suffered for us, yes, in the death on the cross, but Lord, also in your daily strivings. And so, Lord, I just pray for us, people who suffer, people who are actually encountering grief and pain, Lord, meet us there. You've promised to, uh, you've promised to meet us in our suffering that we would be conformed to Christ in our suffering. So, Lord, meet us. Meet us when we're lonely. Meet us when we're missing. Meet us in our frailties and our sin, Lord. And let us remind you that you are of ultimate worth, ultimate value, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.